Robin Vandevich, and this is episode five of the What We Talk About When We Talk About Mind podcast. I have a very special guest today named Peihan Huo. He's currently a PhD student at Cornell University, and his research is focused on applied mathematics. That is to say, in modeling, game theory, and finance. He graduated with honors from Brown University with a bachelor's degree in applied mathematics as well. He's also a native speaker of one of several Chinese languages and has sufficient command of the English language as well. I'm excited to discuss with him what he talks about when he talks about mind. For today's hat, we have a cuneiform symbol that's known in Sumerian as the Shag symbol. And as you can see, we have a few wedge-shaped marks enclosing a little X, which is also represented by two more wedges. Because this writing system, cuneiform, was used in both Sumerian and Akkadian, among other languages, there's some overlap with the word. As noted, in Sumerian, this symbol meant shag, which is also translated as heart or mind, or usually center, midst. In Akkadian, the word is libum, and libum also means heart. It comes to be translated as mind, and it's another one of these thorny ancient language words that we're so interested in. Again, that's the hat of the day. It's shag symbol in both Sumerian and Akkadian cuneiform. And for today's book, we have Your Brain is a Time Machine, The Neuroscience and Physics of Time by Dean Buonamano. It was published in 2017 and explains all the different unique ways that your body tracks time and keeps up your homeostasis. The last few chapters are very interesting with respect to language. After all, this book has to be written, and the last few chapters talk a lot about personhood, what it means to perceive time, and how that's explained to other people versus how it maybe stands with physicists or other trained professionals. And I recommend the book for that reason. That is to say, the last few chapters of the book talk about how time is such an important concept in language, and we have to talk about it in terms of space. And we're very limited by what our language can afford, which of course is indicative of the tight relationship between language and psychology. So the book is called Your Brain is a Time Machine, The Neuroscience and Physics of Time by Dean Buonamano, and I highly recommend it. So tell me a little bit about your linguistic background. What's your native language and how did English come into the fold? So my native language is Mandarin Chinese. So the written language is simplified Chinese. Because in mainland China, we have English classes. So it's basically part of the requirement since elementary school. And, and also it's part of the exam requirements. For me personally, middle school and high school, I went to a, it's still a public school, but uh, the curriculum focused a lot more on English and foreign languages. So some of my classmates, they, they do like uh, French and Spanish. I just did English. So, and also I came here to the States for college. So that's how I pick up more like English, like conversational English. And so now I've been here for like six years now. Yeah. And I've been conversing with people in English and I think I'm pretty fluent in English right now. 
Yeah, I'd say you're very fluent. I know, I remember when we were having an earlier discussion and I noticed how with your background being in applied mathematics, you're very particular and you're very good about the numbering in your words. And when I say numbering, I mean applying the correct quantity such as, such as dog, one dog versus dogs or multiple. For example, I recall you're very specific about saying maths, matrix, matrices, vertex, vertices, so forth. So I would, I think many people would agree that you're much more than fluent in English. But thank you. Your native language is Mandarin Chinese, but the writing system you said is simplified Chinese, correct? Yeah. The first time I heard the process of learning the characters and and how that needs to happen at a specific window of time. I was pretty fascinated by it. And this was from a different friend whom I spoke with several years ago. But could you share a little more detail about what it's like to go through that process to, to learn that language as well as the writing system? Chinese, like Mandarin, is probably like commonly agreed as one of the hardest language to for foreigners to pick up because it's like it's completely a different language system the the words the characters they don't based on like what we have in english like the fixed alphabets right in chinese it's we have distinct characters to have certain meaning unlike english where you just piece alphabets together to get a word chinese you piece different characters together to get phrases but each character are unique and have has their own meaning and so that's the challenging part about the language so you have to be in the language environment because you have to hear uh, people talking right you have to listen to how people phrase their sentences because in in chinese a lot of times there's no fixed grammatical structure to a sentence especially in conversational setting there's absolutely no fixed way one fixed way to express what you want to say unlike in english because in english is pretty standard sentence structure you either have subject object and the verb but in chinese you people easily flip subjects they easily omit subjects or or objects a lot of times it depends on the context so i think that's uh, what makes the language even harder because there's no fixed grammatical structure and being able to understand Chinese, you have to understand everything or mostly everything in the context, right? Otherwise you wouldn't be able to identify like who's the subject and who's the object because many times it's omitted, especially the spoken language. So for me, I think uh, it's just, I grew up in an environment that my parents, everyone around me speak Chinese. So it's like, in terms of speaking part, it's not, that challenging because as a kid i just learned how to speak chinese and then the characters are a little bit more challenging because like i said there are thousands of characters in chinese and we use about like 2000 to 3000 characters on daily basis so in order to basically what that means is like if you want to understand uh, what's going on in your life if you go to grocery or you know, just live a daily life, you would need to know around like 2000 characters. And then if you want to do work, uh, some 
some jobs, if you want to be more formal, if you're like a lawyer, or then you would have to know more characters because some words and phrases and idioms. Idioms are commonly uh, very, very commonly used in, in Chinese. So you have to know these formal phrases and idioms, and uh, there's a lot of like implied meanings in Chinese. China, Chinese people are tend to be a lot a lot more implicit. They're not that outspoken. They sometimes it's uh, they're what they say. You have to read between the lines. So thankfully, I mean after after they after the government simplified Chinese, they also because the, the they want to promote the literacy rate. So they also introduce what we call the pinyin. So it's it's like the how you can pronounce the characters. It's an easier way to pronounce the characters. So part of the elementary school curriculum in, in China is also about uh, learning uh, this new pronunciation system, pinyin. So that's roughly, briefly, <laughs> how I learn Chinese. And at what age did you first start learning English? Because I know you said a moment ago that it was required curriculum to study other foreign languages in school, correct? Yeah, so the official curriculum starts in, in just first grade elementary school. But nowadays kids, people of my generation or younger, we already started learning English in kindergarten, like when we were like, four or five years old. Now, nowadays it's even more competitive. People, parents sign their kids up for like English classes just to get a head start because the, just the overall environment in China is very competitive. I also had to learn English between the ages of six and nine years old while I was still developing another language. And I found this very problematic and it was difficult. My parents had to choose a dominant language. Otherwise, I would stutter if I wasn't sure how to respond. Did you ever have some of these developmental challenges? Or are you aware of any de developmental challenges of learning two languages simultaneously during a critical period? Yeah, I think the, there are definitely lots of challenges, especially when I first started learning English. Like I said, I think there are two completely different language systems. So when first starting, it was hard for me to learn the pronunciation of the English words. And it's hard to, because I, I wasn't in that, the English language environment. Uh, no one around me actually speaks English. So it's kind of hard to learn how to speak right, and how to pronounce certain words. So it's kind of interesting because I mentioned pinyin, right? Like how you pronounce the Chinese characters. For convenience, uh, they specifically use the English alphabets in pinyin. So when I first started learning English, actually it's, it's pretty common among many, many Chinese people. Uh, we just use the way how we pronounce pinyin to pronounce English words. And that's completely off. So it's, 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 it's kind of funny because, because this is, we have a term called Chinglish. And it's kind of re referring to the specific method of, you know, pronouncing English words using the same way as how we pronounce like the, the Chinese characters. So that's kind of, uh, I, I, for a period of time, I did that as well. Then later on, I began to learn like more of the correct pronunciations and 
kind of being able to separate the two two languages. That's very interesting. I'd never heard of the phrase Chinglish. I'll have to look it up and see if it qualifies as an ISO recognized language. Now, I'm interested a little bit more about the comment you said a second ago concerning the differences between the language systems of English and Chinese. Could you talk a little bit about what some of the major differences are? Right. So, as I briefly mentioned earlier, I think grammatically speaking, like I said, in English, there's more distinct structures in the language, especially in the written language. There's nothing much you can do. It is, if you speak like Master Yoda, you sound very weird to people, right? And uh, but in Chinese, everyone speaks like Master Yoda. Um, and then sometimes uh, people just give a phrase, like "eat," but they put put in like a questioning sense, and and then maybe they feel like there's not enough information for the the receiver to understand what's going on, so they they add something after that single phrase or word. And so it's, it's kind of like everything gets pieced together in like not in very clear order, but somehow uh, people are able to understand. And as for like written language, there are in Chinese there, I mean, of course for written language, there's slightly more structure to it, but since since there are so many characters and so many different ways to combine those characters, you can coin like create new phrases just by like you know combining, rearranging the different characters. And sometimes in written language, it can also have more variety than than English. In, in terms of the uh, the more of the meaning or the subtle subtleties. Uh, English words tend to be more straightforward. Like one word just means a particular thing. Like, of course, if you want to trace the etymology, uh, there are history behind certain words. But basically, what I'm trying to say is like ignorance of those history of the English word doesn't really prevent you from using the word correctly. Because the word is just you like has it has the specific meaning, and if you use that, people will be able to people will be able to understand. In comparison, in Chinese, there's a lot more subtleties. I mean, of course, this is part of due to the you know the the long lasting history of China. They they have four thousand five thousand years of history and. It, Mostly people keep the same language system, right? And so there, so in Chinese, you have multiple words can mean the same thing, but they're commonly used in very different settings. So if a people is well-educated, they would know the, the history of a certain phrase, especially idioms. Like for idioms, uh, there's a lot more history to it. And usually they are uh, coined by some like really famous people in history or like a referring to a particular really uh, well-known event in history. So sometimes they have very different connotations. Some, some of them have negative and some, some of them have positive connotations. So if you're not well-educated enough and you just use certain words, it can cause you big trouble.
because other people will be able to understand the implications. So I think this is also kind of unique to the Chinese language. Lots of implications are used. So like I said before, you have to read between lines. You have to understand what's the hidden meaning behind the, the obvious words and phrases. You mentioned before that there were a lot of implicit phrases and you've doubled down on it now by saying that in, in English, things can be a, a lot more or things are usually a lot more explicit. So could you give me an example of one of these phrases that requires context, but maybe could have many hidden meanings? And anyone will suffice just because I think a lot of people are curious for, for what it's like to encounter one of these from a listener's perspective. So I think, I think a very obvious example is, is lots of Chinese people are very good at being sarcastic. So it's, it's not just, it's the same word, but if you just use a different tone, it could mean like very different things. For example, it's kind of fun. It's this anecdote that I recently just heard from a friend at Cornell. So their office was located in the basement of their, uh, the, the, they're in the chemical engineering department. So there, uh, one of the students' uh, office is located in the basement. So they were complaining about the, uh, how their office is in the basement and there's no window, uh, et cetera. And the other student, which is the friend of mine, uh, got tired of uh, listening to the complaints. So they just said, the literal translation is foundation, but she, uh, they said it in a way that it sounds very sarcastic. They were basically saying, you know, you are so important. You're, they were saying to the other person who were complaining, like, you are so important. Like, you don't deserve to be in the basement. Oh, I got you. I see what you're saying. And what is the phrase in Chinese? Ji shi. So basically the, the word by word translation, ji means foundation and shi means stone. So it's basically just a, yeah, the bedrock. Perfect. Yeah, that is an interesting way. So would that be used as a way to make a comment about someone in playful antagonism? Yeah, so I think that was exactly what happened. There are countless examples. It's, it's, so basically any word in Chinese, if you say it in like a particular context, it could mean very different things. For example, the, the word I just mentioned, people seldom use that. Uh, they only use that when it comes to like, when it sort of comes, comes to like, uh, quote unquote, propaganda related stuff. Like they're saying something is so important that it's the, it's the foundation to the country, but we seldom use that in daily setting. So when you say it's some like, in like a daily conversation setting, like when you say, oh, you're the, you're the foundation of this department, then it definitely mean, like sounds very sarcastic. Absolutely. There's a fine line between some of these terms, such as sarcasm, idioms, and there's many others, of course, like hyperbole, simile, and so forth. But the book I just introduced yesterday was called The Grammar of Metaphor for the fourth interview that I did with Dr. Brian McVeigh. I remember the book classified some of these, and I think the classification, the one you just shared, would be amplification. That is to say, the phrase is said in order to 
bring attention to some particular aspect of a situation so it amplifies it. So one thing that I'm very interested to discuss is the word mind as it relates to some of their potential Chinese counterparts. And I say this with a high level of interest and enthusiasm because when I looked online, I found so many of these words. And what I'd like to do is go through them one by one and I can spell them out using the pinyin system. I'm not gonna make an attempt to pronounce any of them and I'm hoping to rely on you for that. And I'm hoping with each term, moreover, you can tell us how it's pronounced as well as how it's used according to your daily life. Does that sound all right? Yeah, sure. So the first one I have is spelled T-O-U-N-A-O. It's pronounced as tonal. Yes. So T-O-U part is to, uh, so that means the, the literal head. And the second part is now. I think the literal translation is brain. So referring to the uh, what's inside the skull, right? And together it, it means intelligence. Like uh, if you say someone has tonal, then it means they're intelligent and they have, they're very smart and sharp. So this, yeah. this word, is it ever used in a way to describe physical separation between a person and the word? We could say mei uh, tonal. Mei means no. So basically the literal translation is just no brain. Like, but it's, it's more, it's set, it's usually using a more jocular uh, setting. Like people are being, uh, trying to make fun of someone, but in a friendly way, not in like a really like antagonistic way. But formally, I don't think this is commonly used. So it's more, uh, it's more commonly used in like a daily colloquial language setting. We say meitonal. So first one on the list. Right, so the second one we already talked about, the tonal. Uh, mm -hmm. So the, fir the first one, it's pronounced as xinxen. So, so this is more uh, referring to the state of mind. So there's actually this idiom called xinxen bu ning. So the first xinxen is state of mind and bu is no, uh, ning is peaceful. So the literal translation is that you are not in a peaceful state of mind. It, it talks about, it describes this an anxious state, state of anxiety and people feeling really on edge. So, uh, and it's, it's the xingxian is more referring to like a feeling. And the most common way people use that is the phrase or the idiom that I just mentioned, xingxian bu ning. It's very rarely used on its own. So mostly it's used in that particular phrase. And we already covered the second one. What about the third one? So the third word, sometimes in English, we get it as spirit, mind, essence, psyche, vitality, or vigor. And that this one really caught my mind. How is it pronounced? So the second character, as you can see, is the same as the second character in the first word phrase, right? Uh, so it's together is pronounced as jingshen. So the first one is jing and second character is shen. So 
yeah so like you said the translation would be spirit so it's also de- describes a like you look so there are different uh, ways you can use this word uh, it could be an uh, it can be an adjective so you could say you look very jingshen means you look very energetic you're basically shining and and there's this like very popular phrase on the internet uh, says jingshen xiaohuo so it means this very energetic guy so just a very enthusiastic guy so people use this uh, quite often and so that's where the when you use it as an adjective you can also use this as a noun which basically means spirit right so you could say you're not in a good mood or you you don't look well so you could say jingshen bu hao bu is no and hao is good so it basically means spirit no good so like it's it's not about your physical well definitely your physical appearance gives hints but it's more about like how you how you present yourself like sometimes you you just look very depressed and sad and people say you don't have a good spirit right jingshen is it appropriate for me to say that for me to consider it or think about it as something which animates a person or something that which gives a person their something that enables people to move and to carry out carry themselves in our in a social interaction do you think that's an appropriate characterization yeah so actually in the traditional chinese culture people emphasize on three things it's the jing qi and shen so here it's jing shen right jing and shen but there's actually another uh, character which people sometimes put in in between those two is called qi qi is the the literal translation is is breath uh but it's it's more referring to the the inner flow in your body like because in the traditional chinese medicine jing is the sort of like they're all referring to what's going on in your body but kind of these three things dominates like your well-being so if you you can't lose any of those three things if you don't if you lose one of those three you don't you won't look energetic you won't look a uh, very uh good could you just repeat what the three words are i'm very interested right so it's the jing which is the first character in this mm-hmm. word and qi is like the literal translation is breath and shen is spirit or another meaning is god so that's the last character in this word so it's three things jing qi and shen I encounter words like this that have that have these variable meanings quite often. It's interesting because it's a very multifaceted word and even more impressive that you use it as an adjective as in vigorous, lively, animated and so forth. And really it gives more credence to what you said earlier about the versatility of the language in the writing system and the absolute necessity to consider the context in which the word is used. And What about the fourth word on that list that might commonly be read as attention? 
Right. So this one is a little bit more distinct from the rest because this one just means pay attention. Right. So zhu, it's pronounced as zhu yi. So zhu means in the literal translation is instill. So you or give. And yi, yi is the your your uh well I guess yi kind of you can translate it that as attention or or mind. So the literal translation of this phrase or this word is means give attention or give mind. I think yi is is because when we talk about the the Chinese word for consciousness is yi shi. So yi is the Yi shi means attention and knowledge. So yi shi together means consciousness. So that's kind of interesting because it's sort of thing encapsulates like Chinese people's understanding of uh, what consciousness is. I find as we go through these, they're interesting, they overlap. I think interpreting these is going to be a psycholinguistic task, a very significant psycholinguistic chore from someone in several hundred years. So I'm happy we're documenting this right now because I think it's important. Also, I think it's important because this isn't work that a lot of other people are doing and people aren't really having conversations about some of these very important words that we use on a daily basis. So what about the fifth one on the list that I see is translated as either mind or heart. Yeah, so for this one, it's pronounced as xiunghuai. So xiung literally means the chest or or breast, right? So that's what xiung means. And huai is also referring to this specific part. When you say people, when in Chinese, when we say hug, it's, it means huai bao, like if you just hug someone or uh, that, that's why. So actually these, these two characters, they all mean to this physical part of the, the chest part of the human body. And together, it, it usually means it's, it could mean uh, your aspiration, your goal or it could also mean your tolerance, like your your ability to tolerate or fear like uh, certain unfairness or people mistreating you or or just yeah. So it could uh, to it's kind of the combination of like ambition and being the being able to tolerate. And what about this sixth one? It's mind or breadth of my B-R-E-A-D-T-H. Right, so this is pronounced as Xiong Jing. So Xiong, same character, it means the, the chest part. And Jing is actually the the collar, like the what the Asian Chinese people wear, like the traditional Chinese uh, garment, like they have a special uh, collar. So this means the chest and collar, that's the literal translation. And what that means is uh, this. So this one is more referring to like you're you being able to tolerate, like because people 
in, in Chinese culture, people really value uh, like someone is is good at tolerating like unfairness or mistreatment, because uh, back in the days, like if you get uh, some mistreatment or from the the emperor, then you have to hold it. Or if you get unfair treatment from your peers or your boss right now, someone superior than you, you have to be able to tolerate and move on, sort of. Is this word predominantly used in accompaniment with other people or the actions of another person? Or is it used in a single person capacity? And by single person, I mean, I get up, I'm not having the best day, and I'm at risk of losing my composure, getting emotional. I'm not sure if that question makes sense. Right, yeah, I think it makes sense. So I think it's less commonly used in like a personal uh, personal level. Like if you're, if you wake up and you just have a bad mood, we seldomly use this particular phrase. So it refers to something, a bigger issues. Like when you get mistreated or like when you get oppressed by your superior. It, it's seldomly used on like a personal level. And it's seldomly used in a daily conversational setting. Again, like if you want to be sarcastic, you could use this. <laughs> yeah. What would be a sarcastic way to use the phrase? An example. You could say you really have shunjin, like, which means that if you feel bad for that person, like if the, the, the mistreatment they're getting, like, but they still somehow like tolerate that. You could say, uh, you really have Xiongjin, like it's it's a little bit being a little bit sarcastic is kind of criticizing that particular person being uh, too weak. I understand if they take it personal. So it sounds like just based on what we've covered so far, it sounds like the a lot of these are number one anatomical references to the chest, to the heart, and to the trunk of the body. And number two. It sounds like there's not a clear line or not a clear distinction between what's an emotion versus what might be thinking action, if such a line exists at all. But would you would you agree that it's it, it's fair to say that it's it's hard to differentiate between what's an emotion and what's thinking action? Yeah, I agree. Yes. Outside of the words that we covered. Are there any other words or expressions or idioms that you think might sound queer to an English native English speaker, but you think were much more commonplace and well understood in your language? Are you asking about like specifically mind related words? Yeah, anything like anything related, any any permutation or derivation that uses one of the words either we covered or maybe ones that we haven't covered. When we talk about, if you talk about like a murder or like a, a, a really cruel act by someone, you could say they, they are, they basically lose their heart. So we say it's used to describe people are, uh, who are really obnoxious and who are basically merciless and very cruel. So you could say it's like 
crazy and obnoxious. And also another phrase or idiom used in, in Chinese is called so in Chinese, there's this specific construct where this is your physical body, like your corpse, like your, your body is your physical container. And inside there's what we call the two things like and I think we talked about this uh, last summer. So the two things together, they, they compose or they, they make up the human spirit. Because in Chinese culture, I think when people die, we believe that your, your spirit just leaves your body. And your spirit is, is made up of uh, what we call hun and po. So the, the idiom shi hun luo po means, oh, actually, if you take the third character, the first character and the third character, it's shi luo, right? So we talk about this as oh, the falling false. hope. Yeah. So, right. So, and then now you insert hun and po in there, like make it shi hun luo po. So it's basically just a, a combinatorics game, right? You 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 have shi luo and you have hun po, and then you just insert them into each other, and you get this new idiom. Uh, it means you're very depressed, you're very disappointed, and you basically literal meaning is you lose your spirit. So as if you're dead. So I think I think in some sense like. Hun po refers to more uh, like uh, the subconsciousness. Like you can't, you don't have like active uh, control of what's going on, but still uh, it reflects your spirit. So when you look bad and when you look uh, sad, people say you you look or lose in a more conversational setting. People would say, uh, like it basically just lose your spirit. You, you lost your spirit. I was always interested about that because there's, there's a huge problem, especially in scholarship when you're studying any language, that, that the Western mentality and that the Western way of looking at things is the de facto standard worldwide but as you well know, this is just simply an untrue statement. And it's hard to explain this to some people when they're so immersed in their own psychology as individuals, but on a secondary basis in what a great sociologist called our own collective representations, or that is to say, the collective worldviews of our own society and that society imposes on us because it can be quite different for different groups of peoples. Now, yes. I want to ask a little bit more about any expressions that are related to thinking or decision-making. So for example, in English, we have the phrase, what does your gut tell you or follow your gut instinct or follow your heart? Are there any literal expressions that don't, don't necessarily have to be similar to this or exactly to this, but that are uniquely Chinese in how to express decision-making, especially in a moment where something has to be done. Are there any phrases, phrases that come to mind? 
yeah, when it comes to decision making, like you could say, Lingguang, uh, it's more related to like a, when an idea came to you. So you could say Lingguang Yixian or Lingguang Zhaxian. It basically just means like light, some spiritual light hit you. And you just had you just have this sort of unique or brilliant idea, right? And yeah, so I think uh, I think heart is also sort of uh, the main organ for for decision making in Chinese language. Uh, people say follow your heart. That's basically mean uh, in Chinese it's tong xin. Tong means follow, and heart is. Xin is heart. Yeah, so I think mainly there's nothing that unique that I can think of at the moment. But of course, the more modern language tend to focus on the, the brain part a lot more. So people in Chinese, like people also say, uh, use your brain, or at least they refer to brain when it comes when they were talking about decision-making. I have an interesting question for you. Something that I've noticed when I've studied different languages, I call it the, the mind-heart dichotomy. And I find it quite often because you have to look at the words from an anatomical standpoint. Number one, are we talking about specific organs? Or as the neuroscientists like to say, anatomical concomitants. Past that, there's... There's also the distinction between what people believe and what's reflected in their speech. So something that I've noticed is that when we talk about our heart, we tend to think of it as something as we follow, something that acts almost independently of us. However, when we use the word mind or equivalence to the brain and so forth, we tend to treat it as a tool or as some sort of fallible instrument. And I know this sounds a bit strange, but hear me out. When we use the word mind in English, we may say, put your mind to it, or use your mind, or use your brain, or use your head. You notice the verb, it's a verb of utility to use, or something that's treated like a machine. But now replace those same phrases with heart, and it doesn't quite sound as similar. So for example, we don't say use your heart, we say somebody's heartless, but the heart kind of does its own thing. So I'm wondering what your opinion is on this dichotomy between both anatomy and the way in which we regard the brain as a tool versus the heart as just an inescapable aspect of us that functions almost independently. Yeah, I actually I think that's an interesting point. I, I do agree with you. Yeah, even uh, I think Chinese is also what happening yeah, what's happening in Chinese is also a support your claim. So when we mention the brain, it's more about being able to make smart decisions and, and rational. So it's more related to like rational decisions. But people would never say, so, you know, when it comes to like a life-changing decision or uh, when it comes to like if you are to make a confession or not, or like when it comes to making an honest decision it's always we always use uh, phrases that are related to heart so i think that's that's the main difference so we whenever we mention brain 
it's, it's more like we're trying to say we're trying to make a smart and rational decision but uh, if we want to make honest and and true decisions uh, true to your heart decisions then heart is inevitably used and they yeah there's it, it seems uh, that there is a clear boundary between heart and brain like because oftentimes they're used in like very different context in Chinese. I enjoyed this part of the conversation where we're reflecting on the way words are used and the importance of context. Because as I study ancient languages, I'm given a dictionary that I have to look up words. And I've been arguing for some time and I'm writing about this right now that I think it's necessary for dictionaries to always supply context the circumstances under which the word inherits that specific meaning because for some of these words and the variability they have, I think it's reasonable to assess that it's just too difficult to guess, especially when you're removed in terms of with respect. It's even more difficult when you're removed with respect to time, space, and language and culture from what you're trying to interpret. So I think that's incredibly important. Pehan, it was really nice to have you on the program and, and for you to share about some of the interesting words that in Chinese resemble notions of heart and mind, as well as some of the idiomatic expressions that we find ourselves. I really appreciate you for coming on the program. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, it was also a very salt-sparkling conversation. So I think it definitely, yeah, also made me think about a lot of like these idioms and phrases what they really mean in Chinese. So thank you. <laughs>